I'm going to blow your mind with some knowledge as we get started today. You ready? We live in a strange world. Uh, you may be unaware of this, but there is currently a bear roaming Petaluma. We live in a strange world. And I think it's okay to recognize that no matter uh, what, what you think about the world or what side you stand on any number of important issues. Uh, the world is weird. Uh, how weird is it, you ask? Well, let me tell you how weird it is. I read an article this week that said venomous sharks were found in the River Thames in London. Venomous sharks. Sharks don't need help to be scary. I mean, why don't we just put laser beams on their heads? Like, what's the deal here? I'm telling you, the world is strange, and it seems like it continues to get more and more strange. I don't know that we are any stranger now than we ever have been historically, but it does feel that way. And let me give you a different example of the strangeness that I see in the world that I want to share with you today. It's not only, um, you know, land animals and fish that are acting weird. We as people are acting a little bit crazy in ways that I feel are new to us, at least in my lifespan. I read a headline this week that uh, this is a real headline. It said this, man allegedly killed father-in-law with a leaf blower during argument about a pig. That's weird, right? And don't try to picture how someone would kill someone else with a leaf blower. That's just, we don't need to go there. Uh, police are currently looking for a woman who ordered soup from a restaurant and went in and got it, took it home, and called back into the restaurant and complained that the soup was too hot. And so the woman behind the counter tried to talk to her over the phone, and the woman started, uh, the woman who bought the soup started yelling at her, um, hung up on her, called back, yelled at her again. She was trying to say, we can refund your money, we can give you soup back, new soup, like whatever it is that's going on. So this woman finally is just irate, and the girl on the phone can't talk her down. So the woman shows up to the restaurant, shows her the soup, and yells at her about how hot the soup was, and then proceeds to throw it on the girl's face. The world is weird. And people are acting crazy. Let me give you another example of how people are acting crazy. Do you know what is quickly becoming one of the most risk-filled positions in America? What did you say? Police officer, retail, school nurse. What did you say, Daphne? Grocery checker. You're all wrong. School board member. School board member is quickly becoming the most risk-filled position in America. It's true. School board meetings across the country, though they were never fun-filled events, have become a battleground over everything that parents are frustrated with in the entire world. Masks, vaccine mandates, the curriculum that is used, 
how racism should be handled in schools. The whole thing has created this ugly, nasty pot that is boiling over every time the school board gets together. It seems that there is so much for people to fight about. Things have gotten so bad. I'm not exaggerating here on any of this, by the way. This all comes straight out of the news. Things have gotten so bad that in early October, Attorney General for the United States, Merrick Garland, directed federal authorities to collaborate with state and local law enforcement to combat harassment, intimidation, and threats of violence against school administrators and school board members in particular. The Attorney General of the United States. And then he got in trouble and yelled at for writing that letter. He was responding to a request from the National School Board Association, which represents school board members across the country, and which in late September sent a letter to President Biden asking for assistance, handling what they called a form of domestic terrorism. Some criticized the effort, complaining that the federal government and school boards are demonizing well-meaning mothers and fathers who just want what's best for their children and are sticking up for their families. So what are school boards worried about that they would say, we need help and we need protection? They're worried that it will not be long until school board meetings, and I almost can't believe I'm saying this out loud, school board meetings quickly escalate into violence. And sadly, this is not an overreach. In many areas, board meetings have turned into a battleground. Meetings have gone hours, up to four or five hours, some have been shut down by the police because of unruly parents who have had to escort them off the premises. And it's not uncommon for people to yell obscenities at the board and threaten them in one way or another. In fact, in some areas, police have been instructed to sit outside the homes of board members as a safety precaution so that no one will hurt them while they are home. The step was taken because of messages like this one. Someone started the message with a bunch of cursing, but then said, you are a traitor to the USA. A public hanging is in order, should only take a few seconds. To a school board member. People are protesting outside of members' homes, threatening them openly and over email. They have even reached out to the children of some board members, texting and emailing eight-year-olds to tell them how crazy and what lunatics and liars their parents are. And this isn't just in faraway places, okay? Uh, sometimes I wonder about what I should tell you or what I should say to you. And so I spend a lot of time praying over what examples I want to use because sometimes the, example I, I, the examples that I use can set off one thing or another. And this morning, as I was getting ready, uh, in my newsfeed, there came up a news story about what's just happening in Northern California. And here's the troubling thing. They are listing some of these same things. They are listing about how people are being threatened. And then there's a small paragraph after it lists this, and it says... One of the places where this is being fueled is in the Christian church, where pastors have uh, refused to follow mandates, have refused to do this, and have refused to do that, and are encouraging their members 
to stand up for themselves and their God-given rights. Now, this only scratches the surface. We're not even going to talk about what is being said to election officials across the country. That's a whole nother bag of cats. But I want to be clear about something before we move on. I, none of this is about what someone believes about an issue and whether they are right or wrong. That's not what this discussion is about. It's also uh, not about concerned parents, really, or uh, American patriots defending their freedoms, wherever you fall on all of these different issues and what you think about them. So what is the point and why do I bring it up? It is becoming shockingly normal to treat people that we disagree with as flat-out enemies. And not only enemies, but enemies that need to be destroyed. Can I give you another more personal example? My son, Zeke, you know him as the man of many words, has had a rough start to his school year. And in particular, the way that some adults have treated him in social situations or based on other things has just been atrocious. And he has been told as a 15-year-old that someone's mom will never trust him. Do you know why? Because he became friends with someone who once got in an argument and did something mean to her daughter two years ago and will not let her daughter be around Zeke because he became friends with this girl two years later. Zeke has become an enemy, you see, in their household. This normal? I, I'm struggling with this. What are the criteria today for deciding that someone is an enemy? And how quickly do we make that designation? To put this into perspective, I want to suggest something right out the gates. We are talking in this short series, which there's only one left. It is that short. In this series about making a difference in the world for God and how God can take small lives and small things and turn them into something bigger. We want God to use us to change the world, don't we? And there are all sorts of ways we can interpret what that change should be and what it should look like. But I am coming more and more to believe that perhaps the biggest change we can make in the world will come not through us healing the sick or doing some sort of crazy miracle work for God, but by simply loving people and treating others the way that Jesus told us to. Because let me tell you something. The values that Jesus taught are becoming increasingly countercultural. They always have been, you see. But more and more and more, if you love people like Jesus loves us, and you treat people like Jesus treated those, then you are going to become a radical in this world. It's true. 
To that end, we are going to look at someone this morning who played a small but crucial role in God's plan, but who had along the way to answer this question of who is my enemy and am I willing to put myself at risk for someone that I really probably shouldn't. So we're going to go back to the book of Acts because we only spent almost 30 weeks in it. I felt like we should go back and review But we're going to be in Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9 is best known as uh, the chapter that encompasses the conversion of Saul. But we're going to pick it up in verse 10. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street, And as for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying, in a vision he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem, and he has come here with authority from the chief priest who arrests all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. We don't know much about Ananias outside of this story. And in this chapter, there are two main characters. There is Saul, and there is Jesus. Those are the main characters of this particular section. Acts chapter 22, verse 12, calls Ananias when uh, Paul then is talking back about his conversion, calls Ananias a devout Jew who was a believer in Jesus Christ. Other than that, there is nothing obvious about him that makes him stand out. In fact, he's not even the most famous Ananias in the book of Acts. That award goes to Ananias and... Sapphira. What we do know is that Ananias was minding his own business, not bothering anyone when God came knocking on his door. This story gives us a beautiful but complicated interaction between Ananias and Jesus. And yes, it was Jesus who appeared to Ananias. We know this by the use of the term Lord and the term suffer in my name that the voice says to him. And later, Ananias recognizes that it was Jesus who came and spoke to him. So within this conversion narrative of Saul, Jesus first appeared to Saul, and then he appeared to Ananias. And I think that this is actually really important. But we'll come back to this in a few minutes. Jesus instructed Ananias to go to the house of Judas, 
Find Saul of Tarsus, who is praying, and lay hands on him. He was waiting for Ananias to come and give him back his sight. Now, this would be a very interesting and oddly specific set of directions in any sort of scenario. Linda, go find John, and he is waiting for you to restore his sight. You can find him at Pete's house on Curvy Street. Right? It's weird. It's a weird set of directions without any real sort of context for Ananias. There's no explanation for why he is just told to go. Go to this house, find this person, give him back his sight. And you, if you were Ananias at this point, probably if I were Ananias, the first question I would ask is, um, I'm not an optometrist. How am I going to restore his sight? And then all these other issues come on because this was just not any normal scenario. And Ananias was instructed to go see Saul, who up until this point was the most dangerous man, proven dangerous man that any Christian could encounter. Ananias recognized that Saul was, in fact, a powerful enemy, if not the enemy of the early Christians. He was literally killing and prosecuting Christians, and furthermore, he had the authority to do so. So there was nothing that could stop him. So Ananias looks at the situation, and he just says, God, I'm spotting a problem with this. I don't think I should go. And he asks a reasonable question. This man has been hunting Christians all over the place. God, do you really think it's wise for me to go and find him? Shouldn't I be doing the opposite of that? But Jesus told him to go. Why? Because Saul is his chosen instrument to take the gospel to the world. Perhaps the bit about Saul having to learn how much he was going to suffer for Jesus Christ helped Ananias out the door. But in this moment, Ananias had to make a decision, and it was this. Is the world how he has always seen it? Who is his enemy? And just how much can Jesus change the world? All of that is coming into this one moment, this one choice, to put his life on the line to follow what Jesus is telling him to do. So there are some things that Ananias has to learn. Even though we don't see a whole lot more to this interaction, there are things that we know he's processing as he's going through this. And the first thing he has to learn and accept is this. The gospel has the power to transform anyone. The gospel has the power to transform anyone. There is no one you know or have heard of or could imagine that is too far gone to be changed by the love and power of Jesus Christ. That person does not exist. Anyone can be changed by the love of God in Christ Jesus. Even those who you would consider an enemy, 
and an enemy of God can be changed by coming into contact with Jesus. So Ananias, is Saul your enemy if Jesus tells you he's not? By all accounts, he seems to be. But is it possible that Jesus is changing his life, and are you willing to be a part of that? As those whose lives have been changed by Jesus, we should know this fact, that God can even convert his enemies. We should know this to be true. Paul writes this in a couple of other places, but in Colossians 1, 21 through 23, he says, Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you wholly in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope, held out in the gospel. Don't you see, we were once enemies of God, but through Jesus we have made, been made not only friends, but pure and holy and righteous in his sight. And if it could happen to us, couldn't it happen to someone else too? Which is why I think it is so important that Jesus is the one who appears to Saul and that Jesus is the one who appears to Ananias. Why does that matter? It's not an angel and it's not God. It's Jesus. I think it is so important for this reason. Jesus is the one who sacrificed himself for Saul. Jesus is the one who sacrificed himself for Ananias. So is Ananias going to argue with Jesus about whether Saul is savable or not? How can he? Jesus is telling him the gospel is powerful, that he, Jesus, is powerful, and that he has the power to change through the gospel, every life that he encounters. Amen? Amen. Amen. That God can change through Jesus every life he encounters. We also find something really interesting about this. God has already done most of the work. And guys, this is how it always goes when God uses someone or changes something in the world around him. God always does most of the work, but sometimes it is up to us to believe that it can happen and to see it through. God had spoken to Paul, blinded him, and begun to work on his heart. Paul had been in the dark, blind for three days. Who knows what was going through his mind during that time? God was already changing him. So have you ever thought about this? Why did God ask Ananias to go at all? Why? Couldn't God have simply had the scales fall away and bring Saul back to the light? 
The answer is undoubtedly yes, but he still told Ananias to go and to be the one to give Saul back his sight. Why did he do that? The scales did not fall from Saul's eyes until Ananias went to him and laid his hands on him, and there was great purpose in this moment. Ananias didn't have the power, you see, to restore Saul's sight. God had the power, but he wanted Ananias to go and to put his hands on Saul. Jesus wanted one of his followers someone who loved him and worshipped him, to be the literal hands of grace that brought healing in the life of Saul. And perhaps this was the last lesson that Saul needed to learn during this time of tremendous change. How hard it must have been to accept that Jesus forgave him for what he had done but how much harder it had to have been for him to accept that these people he had been killing would accept him and give him the opportunity to live within their community. So Jesus needed to teach both Ananias and Saul something. The community that follows Jesus is one that is based around love and forgiveness. And this was the thing that Ananias could give to Saul that he so desperately needed, forgiveness from the people he had persecuted. An example of what it means to live a life that follows Jesus who gave himself for all, who did not hold people's sins against them, but loved them and offered them new life. That life that you live in Jesus is not about squashing and destroying enemies. It's about being a part of loving them as God changes their lives and taking advantage of the opportunity to step in and to put your hands on them and to say, you can be a part of this. No matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter where you've been, there is a place for you within the house of the people of God. Ananias was the gateway through which Saul first understood that the community of Jesus was about loving and forgiving other people. Do you know what the name Ananias means? God is merciful. Jesus sent, God is merciful, to the house of a killer to tell him it's okay. This whole scenario brings back to me the things that Jesus said himself in Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 through 48. You've heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn and then the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. 
You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. And in my heart, these words are as convicting now as they ever have been. We live in a world that is increasingly divided and strange, where bears roam our cities and venomous sharks swim in our rivers. A world where the question of how you treat someone is being redefined in ways that go directly against who God calls us to be. We are to turn the other cheek and not to seek retribution. We are to give more than is asked of us. We are to go further than has been demanded of us. Why? Because that is precisely what Jesus did. And when you refuse to do those things for your own interests, you are refusing to be like Jesus. We are to love our enemies and pray that God would change the hearts of those who are apart from him, even if those people mean to do us harm. Why? Because anyone can love those who love them, but disciples of Jesus will love those whom are difficult to love. And they will do it gladly. And through all of this, this is perhaps the way we can make the biggest dent in the world. If you were to ask someone, how does God want to change the world? You could get any number of answers. You might get a list of behaviors that many people believe need to be changed. You may hear about issues like abortion or praying in schools or any number of things. You may hear about how the church is under attack, how we need to rise up and defend ourselves against the ungodly. But we must never forget that God chose to truly change the world, not by destroying it, but by loving it and by sending a Savior to love those who were in open rebellion against him and who were undeserving of any sort of grace or mercy or love. That's how we change the world. By loving those who we shouldn't have. And if we are going to be like him, then we have to be like Ananias. We may have some reservations or some anger or some fear. But we have to believe that the gospel can change anyone. And furthermore, that everyone is deserving of hearing it and experiencing it. We need to listen and pay attention to what God is doing, even if he is doing it in the places that we don't want to go or around people we don't want to be around. Because the gospel is bigger than our preferences or dislikes. We have to set aside our fear and preconceived notions 
allowing ourselves to be guided by grace and mercy. And lastly, in the most beautiful thing we could be a part of, we are invited to be the hands of Jesus that touch people and graciously, humbly, we lay our hands on those who are being transformed and marvel as the scales fall from their eyes in something that God is doing in them. We could be a part of that. You could be a part of that. Because our name needs to mean and be synonymous with the mercy of God.